we have this new segment called The Best of Humanity. And I would love for all of you to call in and tell me about people and groups that are exploring the best of humanity. I think we need to remind ourselves of all the good things happening in the world. And I'd also like to just talk about what the best of humanity means to me. To me, it's a secular philosophy, kind of a form of spirituality. And it has this emphasis or value on the potential of human beings and that we as human beings can strive for self-improvement and to use our God-given talents and abilities to make the world a better place. And that in striving to be the best person that we can possibly be, this also promotes a sense of connectedness and community that the meaning and purpose in life is through our relationships and that it's through connecting with ourselves and one another that we can create a more equitable and just society together. Another part of this Best of Humanity series is that there's a focus on ethical living and living in accordance with the principles of compassion and empathy and social responsibility, which for me, that is what I call my spiritual practice. Also knowing that the best of humanity is not limited to focusing on just human beings that also values mother nature and our environment. It encourages us to consider the actions of the natural world and take steps to preserve it for future generations, just as our ancestors have protected the environment for us. And that it is our job moving forward to protect it going forward because we see the interconnectedness of all things. So to me, the best of humanity is pointing out all the ways that we are living in spiritual alignment, that we are emphasizing the value of human beings, connectedness, community, and ethical living, and working to save the planet. So if you have someone that's making a difference in any of those areas, feel free to basically elect them to be our best of humanity. And we'll talk about them for a couple of minutes on the program. Today on the podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with my colleague, Nita Das McMurthy. And Nita was formerly a radio and TV journalist who basically says the connection between her former career and being a yoga therapist is that she helps people articulate their thoughts with comfort and ease. And as you'll see in this interview, articulating your thoughts with comfort and ease doesn't just mean verbally. It could be somatically articulating your thoughts, not even to an outside reference point, like a yoga therapist, but even to yourself, that exploration of what's going on inside of us each and every moment and learning to connect with that to form a sense of well-being or acceptance or whatever is emerging 
One of the things I love about Nita and her communication style is that there's a lot of wandering and wondering. She doesn't claim to have all the answers and in fact admits there are no answers. We are here to be in this exploration that we call life with one another connecting. So what you'll hear in this interview are not answers, but rather a lot of questions. And one of the things that Nita said before the interview that I wrote down, she said, we're doing the best we can. We're growing and we're changing. We don't need to have the pressure to be this perfect version of ourself. And when she finds herself wanting to show up with that image to be the perfect version of herself, which doesn't exist. (laughs) One of the things that comes up for her, and I think a lot of us can resonate with this, is if we are having that many expectations for ourselves to show up in a certain way, what expectations are we having for everyone around us, including our children? That's a really interesting meditative thought, if you ask me. Another thing that she and I discussed before we got online that wasn't part of the interview, but I think is worth connecting with and and contemplating, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. She said, I can't remember who said it, but perfection and death are similar. And I went and, and started doing some research and found out that we think this is Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun who said this. That's where I'm seeing it on the internet. But Nita said, the aliveness is in the journey. By the time you perfect something, that's when it's over. That's when the death is here. The aliveness is in the journey. Have you ever thought about that? That you're working so hard to show up perfect so people will see this image of you that you want them to see and Maybe you perceive they want to see. And in that, it's over. There's no aliveness there. I see this all the time. But when someone's really okay to relax into who I am right here, right now, imperfectly, showing up, doing the best I can, but knowing that I'm disappointing people and myself, even though I've set goals and I'm working towards them and I couldn't work any harder if I tried, but ultimately I'm flawed and you're flawed and we will disappoint ourselves and others that that is where the aliveness of life is. And what's interesting is most of us are trying to escape that we're trying to escape the one part of life that's worth living the aliveness that's, so, so beautiful. We don't want to be there. We want to be where death is, where the perfection is. That could be a whole meditation. So there's so many jewels that Nita brought to the surface for us to explore today. Those are just two of them that she and I talked about before the conversation online started. But I think you'll enjoy this if you're going for a walk or maybe having a cup of tea Or maybe you want to get together with a group of friends or colleagues or your training program 
and listen to this beautiful, deep conversation with the wanderings and the wonderings, and then have kind of like a book club conversation on your own afterwards. Or send this podcast episode to a friend, have them listen, and then go for a walk and talk about it. We hope that this podcast will inspire the aliveness in you, the imperfection in you, the wanderings and the wonderings. All right, let's go talk to Nita. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler, and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Please nourish yourself, take time for yourself, and really relax into listening to the podcast. Thank you, Nita, for coming today and being our guest on the Yoga Therapy Hour. Thank you, Amy. It's my pleasure. So, Nita, you have your own podcast called Ask Me About Yoga Therapy. Mm -hmm. And I would just like to understand how you came from communications. You know, you're in TV, you're in radio, you're a journalist, and then you took a three-year yoga therapy training with the lovely Ann Pittman and Cassie Kitt at Embodied Yoga Therapy in Ontario, Canada. Like, how did those two things come together? I see it coming together in your podcast is why I bring it up. But how did that happen that you came from communications world into yoga therapy? Oh, yeah. You know, I do feel like that broadcast piece was a long time ago. And at that time... I went into it. I'm very curious about people's stories. And, and in that work, there are some similar skills that allow people to feel comfortable sharing their world with you. Mm. And that's maybe a through line. The difference is, is then you take that story and sometimes the parts that were more interesting to me or most meaningful to the person are not always the parts that the news industry that I was working in were necessarily interested in. So that was sometimes troubling. Then motherhood stepped in. And so then my communications work was not so much off air, but I would sort of be hired by people to help share their health research or communications mm -hmm. under their terms, which was also really interesting because you end up co-creating at that point. So what is it you want to say? Who do you want to say that to? And how do we? So there's a bit of a through line there. Curiosity about someone else's world. Worlds. I always feel like we only see about three to five percent of people. And then if you're lucky, they share a little bit more with you. But they've had a whole life before they meet you. And we'll never see all of that. And then that takes me to yoga therapy. You know, I was just thinking about this in a really deliberate way at the beginning of this year where I, because so much of the year has passed, what is it, mid-January? <laughs> I was feeling like there's already been some new things coming my way where I thought one of the things that's really surprising me in the yoga therapy work is that I come in with the same curiosity, but unlike my previous communication work, I don't really necessarily need them to tell me their story that it's it's different i think in that i can be curious 
and support them being curious about themselves. But I don't need to necessarily have them tell me anything that that moment. And I'm sure you've seen this where people are, oh, I just noticed this thing about myself or I've never noticed this about me before is good enough. And whether or not they feel compelled to share that with me is I'm not attached to that. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I think you and I share this love of the, one of the main mechanisms that makes yoga therapy so special and actually makes it work inside of people is this idea of self-assessment, that we've got these beautiful tools from the ancient teachings of the gunas and the doshas and all of these really interesting ways to look at the world, but also to look at ourselves. And the person themselves is understanding their gunas much more deeply than we could ever understand what we think we're seeing, as you say, there's, we might see three to 5% of what they're willing to show us. So that idea that, that you wrote in, in something you had written to me a few days ago about self-assessment as a healing tool, that that's one of the biggest messages I want to get out there about yoga therapy. Um, what, what else do you have to say about that? Well, I, I guess I think of, I've been wondering a lot about whether that process alone is maybe that moment of ananda, it's that delight where they're actually listening to themselves in a new way. And it's different from some other modalities, I guess, where in other therapeutic modalities, they, they sort of have to talk about it and tell us about it. And then the professional will tell them, well, this is what you have. Whereas I think I was writing to you, I, I feel almost more like a yoga mat where we are this regular place where someone will land. And in yoga therapy, that landing is kind of one-on-one -on -one in whatever feels safe or appropriate for that person. And we hold the space and maybe make some gentle suggestions to explore. And then whatever they find is, is theirs. And it's different from other communication work in that I'm not, I'm not shaping it for them. I'm not telling them where it goes. And you know, I'm curious if you've felt this as well, is that so often we'll move in a particular way that arose based on what they brought that day. And then they'll have these insights about themselves that they may or may not say. Sometimes it's this sigh and you, and you can feel that something is happening for them or something has changed. Or sometimes they'll just say, oh, you know what? I've decided that this way of moving is better for me than that. Or sometimes it's, I want to make this adjustment in my life. And I'm not telling them that. It's funny. I, I feel like that's also the most important thing about having peers in this work, because there mm. are moments where I feel a bit crazy. I'm like, is this really happening? This is quite amazing. <laughs> it's so subtle. It's so subtle. I mean, as you're saying, you're creating this hopefully safe container for them to explore the deepest layers of their own being you're listening, but you're also modeling for them how to listen to themselves. And mm -hmm. it it's so subtle that you could even have a client that looks at you and says, what are we doing? What am I supposed to be doing? Tell me how you want my arm or where do you want my leg? And we're trying to say, here's a technique or a breath work. And I want you to explore that. It's such an interesting thing. It's very empowering. But I find that people who aren't really at that level of refinement within themselves and their own mind, 
are looking for the external now do this, now do this, now do this kind of instruction. Oh, sure. This term probably projects my own bias in life, but I call it good student syndrome, you know, where we are trained to say, okay, well, what's the right answer? What's this? And it is at odds with, you know, we're at this moment in healthcare that is patient-centered and people have to make a lot of decisions about themselves. Even things like this healthcare provider supportive, are they hearing my questions or they're given by lots of supportive healthcare providers? This is your menu of options. And the more complex your care, the more you have to have the skill of, is this working for me or not? And then how do I proceed and what do I ask for and how do I advocate? And not everybody has someone to do that for them. And so remembering to track yourself and listen to yourself more than in the story we have in just our brain area of this is the appropriate way to behave more just when am I allowed to say, you know, I feel like behaving badly because something isn't working, but I can deliver that in a more skillful way. I feel like our work is more important that way Mm. to help people get there. I don't feel like I'm making sense already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. I love that because that's what this podcast is about is exploring together and a co-creation moment by moment. Of course, we have some things that we might want to touch on or maybe not. And I I think, you know, one of the things we talked about is this idea of expectation and perfectionism and how maybe someone wants to show up in a certain way and present this image to be smart or talented or beautiful or whatever it is we think is important. But what yoga therapy is, I hope, trying to get us to be able to do is show up as we are yeah, with our imperfections and our internal wonderings of what did I just say? Am I go- where am I going with this conversation? Like to show up and be able to be joyful with that. Like, woo, where are we, Nita? <laughs> I was oh, following yeah. you, by the way, but I'm just saying like that ability to just be okay with that and be happy about that and know that we spent a lovely hour together that to me is the result of being comfortable in your skin as a result of yoga therapy. I hope so, but it's really a a struggle. Like I, as I was saying to you, when I was coming to this podcast and then thinking about, I was really working hard not to think about what your questions might be and what I wanted to say, because that's a whole rabbit hole of neuroses. But on the one hand, I think, you know, if I'm lucky, I'm still growing. And whatever I say today is the snapshot of where I am. And then it should sound a few weeks from now, like I wanted to say something different because I'm a different person. But on the other hand, I thought, oh, I better say the quote unquote right things, or I'm going to sound like a fool or whatever awful label I had for myself that I'm currently carrying. And it's it's those both pieces that I find you know, if that kind of perfect version of myself were easy, we wouldn't have this consideration of Purusha Prakriti. We wouldn't have faith or philosophy or science or any of these pursuits because we'd all be perfect and have everything figured out, you know. But it's really hard to remember that when there's this other piece of me going, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I being a good student? <laughs> am I being a good yoga therapist and a good guest or... What I love most, I love everything you just said, but what I love most about that is this idea that you will be a different person two weeks from now and two months from now and two years from now. And that where we are in this moment is a snapshot. 
for better or for worse. You know, I had a really bad day last week where I got irate with Bank of America on the phone and I'm not proud of it. (laughs) But that was a snapshot of where Amy was on that day. (laughs) And hopefully she doesn't go there too often. Can we be gentle with ourselves and just know that a series of events led to that? I wasn't in a good place. And here we are. (laughs) Probably have my name flagged in their system. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. I mean, we all have that. And then how do we, you know, assume the best? And like I said, I was saying to you when I was, the more I thought about, wow, how I'm, I'm being really hard on myself. And gosh, I hope I'm not hard on the people around me, you know, as, uh, as a, um, as a friend, as a partner, and then because I'm a mother of three, I think, oh, do I have those expectations of my kids? Because I don't want that. I think because it's subtle, we miss this part of yoga therapy, that this ability to show up as ourselves in an imperfect way most of the time, to shed the image or the mask that we've put on that we want everybody to believe I'm this way and I have it all together. I think a big part of yoga therapy is deconstructing that. But the hard part is we have to get comfortable with it before we can let the world see this new emerging version of ourselves. What do you think about that? I'm just feeling a general yes. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I feel like I want to say to anybody who's listening because this it's there's something about our medium talking about it that it sounds like a lot of brain mind like cerebral mind work and what i've i still sit in awe with is how not using words and going through movement and noticing that everything we're articulating with words you and i can be if we're listening felt in the body. And I still don't know what that's about. I think there's a lot of meditation and science and physiology work that's wondering about that pretty heavily at this kind of growth moment in our human learning in this part of the world. And I think it's fascinating that a lot of philosophies, whether it's yoga, various cultures have been wondering about this for a really long time. Like, how is it that we can find creative ways of moving, whether it's dance or some kind of asana or my favorite kind of rolling on the ground. And then notice that, whoa, I'm holding a pattern here. Over the course of practicing and listening, we can trace that to link to everything else. Like we're water balloons is often the metaphor I use with clients is that you know how with water balloons, you can push one part of ourselves of that water balloon and it has repercussions everywhere. And you can look at that in just the physical, but then you can look at that in terms of when there's a physical holding, how that can impact other koshas to use our yoga language. It can reflect a if I'm in a bad mood, there's a good chance my shoulders are up to my ears. It's just interesting to me how these link up. It's like our body's a journal for everything else in our life. And mm, I'm still, you know, I, I feel like I'm on the learning edge of this all the time. Every time I experience this with people, with my own practice, and there's, I don't have an answer for it, but it's just amazing how it's all together. Well, you had written on your website, which I'll show at the end of the show for those people watching on YouTube, 
you wrote, communication includes the entire body. I don't know if you remember writing that. And I think that's what you're saying. And that the words that I try to use for these subtle concepts we're talking about, I call it embodied mental health care. It's kind of a term I tried to coin that, Mm. that mental health is not in your head. It's your whole body, as you're saying, that when you have chronic mental emotional patterns, those are connected to actual physiological and skeletal muscular patterns in your body. Those two things are not separate. That my right hip starts to lift up and go forward and cause my SI joint pain when I get really stressed out, don't drink enough water, I'm sitting too much, and I feel overwhelmed. That's Mm. mental emotional pattern is going to impact my right hip. I, I can see it now. And I think a lot of what we're doing in yoga therapy is helping people to make those connections, maybe. You know, nowadays, when we say mind, people assume that we're talking just about this part. And I often wonder if when people spoke about mind before, they meant something bigger, or maybe it's just that because we live in a time and place, I mean, we're both in North America here, that really values the work of the mind more than ever, and what we see and, and how we use this part of our head to engage with the cyber world, and that everyday work is less and less involving the mind of the body, that it's easy for us to forget that the mind of the body as part of ourselves and that it's uh, in every cell. Yeah, I think so. That's what it feels like. I I wrote this down, the mind of the body. Huh? I like that. Again, I don't think that's mine. (laughs) I'm sure there's somebody, one of my Yodas taught me that. Well, I want to tie it into to something, and this is a little off track. We we didn't talk about this beforehand, but this idea of a kavacha, K-A-V-A-C-A, kavacha, this kind of veil of protection that we put around ourselves so that we can interact with the world and try to keep ourselves safe. But the kavacha oftentimes keeps good things out due to you know, a version of, oh, I don't like that, or I don't think I like that. And it sometimes lets things that are not supportive to us in because we have these attachments to things that don't serve us. And I'm just wondering how that might even fit into this discussion of exploring on the yoga mat through our bodies, communicating with our own bodies, I don't even think most people realize they have this shield or veil of protection around them, you know? So even even using yoga therapy to explore the mind, explore the body, but also how am I interacting with the world outside of me? And how is my kavacha keeping me safe or maybe isolating me. I I just, I think that's interesting too, how we interact with the outside world, which goes back to your first career of being a communications person. Yeah, I know. As soon as you started describing that, I thought of a membrane. And because we were talking about cells earlier, the membrane of cells as well. And I love that you introduced the idea of the outside world. I often try and name that deliberately with people that our well-being is linked to our ecology and mm. our world around us. 
feel like my words are going to sound a bit stronger than I mean them to, but there, there's a risk, I think, of thinking of therapy and our well-being as being a function of the work we do on ourselves. I think it's important to think about the work we do in relation. We have that a very intentional thing in the practice of yoga therapy and yoga in terms of seva, that if it's just the all about me show, that's just as isolating as some of the modern negative attributes we have in people like self-absorption and selfish and only ourselves. And that doing therapeutic work with only considering ourselves, I wonder how therapeutic that will actually be unless we remember that wider piece. And that kavacha, the membrane of cells, is only as healthy as its engagement with the world outside of it, too. This is a really malformed thought, so I appreciate your... (laughs) (laughs) We're just (laughs) wandering together today. Anybody who knows me is like, I kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of speaking stream of consciousness and it's... It's a little malformed. I haven't thought of the logical conclusion of that, but it's that's kind of where my head is going. And well, well, let me tell you what one of my beloved teachers from the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram, Narithya Jagannatham, speaks of. She said that you know yoga slash yoga therapy was originally in the the culture, the Hindu culture, not necessarily mm. the Hindu religion, but the culture of we are here to protect one another, to have a safety net, to care for one another. And within that context, yes, take care of your mind, body, and spirit so that you can be a good member of society and contribute to society. And she didn't say this because she's much more diplomatic, but I'm going to say it. Somehow we took all these wonderful pieces of self-care and self-awareness, self-actualization, and brought it into a capitalistic society where it's now a commodity to feel good for me. And there Uh, isn't necessarily this expectation that we're going to use that well-being to be a productive member of society that takes care of all, and especially the least among us. So how does that sit with you? Oh, I love how you named that. It is something I wonder about a lot. And it reminds me of, you know, there was just one simple thing my mom used to always say, which was there's a little story about a a bird and it being thirsty and all the time. And she would say, it doesn't matter who comes to your door. You always have to offer them water and food. But there's this built in. It's it's just a simple thing. But, you know, my family of origin is Bengali Hindu. And I I don't think it's exclusive to that. I think a lot of cultures have this basic, necessary community care, generosity piece. And as soon as you started speaking of that, I said, oh, yeah, this is why she would always tell, you know, when you can hear these lovely broken record rememberings of your parents that shape your Mm -hmm. value system now, including always driving back and double checking the oven. I do that still too. Um, (laughs) Mama, you know, (laughs) but yeah, it's funny that when we take any kind of, I think a spiritual practice and just pretend it's not spiritual anymore, because that's not fashionable and just take out the pieces that are commodities like that, then we can miss the bigger picture that it's not, 
an individualist project. And I think there are a lot of people who have named the troubling piece of capitalism can do that, that it because it's individual driven and commodity driven, that these things have gotten lost in yoga. And I think that's, we were talking about this too, is I think that we, not the royal we, you and I, but that <laughs> sometimes be the trouble of when I'm in Canada, you know, yoga therapy and its inclusion as a healthcare option is behind that of the States and that it's not automatically part of interdisciplinary care. And people are still learning about what that is. And I think if, for lots of good reasons, people hear the word yoga and are very concerned about what that means, especially a lot of healthcare professionals. They, they are very concerned about, well, what does a yoga therapist bring to the table? Are we going to have to remind them to be responsible? And I mean, they just don't know what our education background is. And it's a shame that something really can be such a helpful thing. There's a, a little bit of fear or concern around it. Apprehension maybe is a better word. I completely agree with you that taken out of its spiritual context, what are we really doing? But like yoga, even spirituality has all these strange connotations. Like I was looking for a better word than spirituality the other day because I I feel spirituality has been co-opted and it no longer represents what we do. And And the word that I came up with from the Greek and Roman times is humanism, that you mm. are working on your own self-awareness, self-actualization as part of a community so that we can all work together to be happier, healthier, more prosperous, more self-aware. But I, I hate to word, use the word humanism because now we're going out of the Indian culture into the Greeks and Romans. Like I, I can't find the word that I need to describe the the container with which we work. And then mm. additionally, I think so many of us are worried that healthcare will say no thank you on spirituality. We no, we don't want that. We don't need that. And I am starting to think that that may be our way into healthcare because a lot of the other modalities like PT or OT or psychology have kind of claimed their territory Hmm. But not nobody's talking about spirituality in a secular spirituality, right? Where you could be any religion you want or atheist or agnostic, but there's still spirituality. And so I've been really playing with this idea that maybe that's exactly what healthcare needs and we should put our stake in the ground there. And Matt Taylor believes this too, or at least he did a few years ago, that that's the missing part of healthcare. And that's what we are really great at. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, that is very interesting. I look at how some of the different ways people practice yoga therapy, and I don't know that this is fair, but I I sometimes, in me, I feel a bit of an aversion when I feel like it looks like somebody is. There's a temptation to make our work sound more valid by pretending to sound like something else in a way. And I have to resist that. You know, there was, uh, when I'm describing my work to a physio, I might create a parallel, but it's not physio work that I'm doing. And it is very distinct. So you have so much more experience than I do in this area, but to really think about what is unique about what we have, that spirituality is a very interesting one. And I wonder a lot about even what that word means to people as well. When I think about healthcare, I almost think of these very good 
PTs and OTs and doctors and nurses and specialists as these very powerful bricks. But I think of yoga therapy as being that little mortar in between that travel that can potentially travel with the patient and help them remember who they are in this journey what is it that they want what is their community what is it they're carrying with them as they learn from all these different super important respected honored caring other bricks in their landscape this is like a terrible way to pitch this practice though because people are like what do you want to be cement like what is that i don't think (laughs) person at pitching the elevator pitch for this work. But first of all, we are all struggling with the elevator pitch because there's so many facets to the work that we do. But I love what you're saying that we are like the little mortar between everything else that can hold it together and, and have patient centered healthcare and have people staying in touch with their values and their needs and their desires and help them come home to self while they're on this healthcare journey. I mean, as we were talking about just a few minutes before, you know, my cancer journey started last May and now it's January. I was going to the doctor several times a week, you know, Mm -hmm. and to have someone that I could come home to in the same place and time. And that person was going to show up for me. And for me, that was my teacher, Gita from KYM. Every two weeks on a Thursday night, I was going to see her online, her Friday morning. That was my glue. That was my mortar that held it all together. And then being given a daily practice to do with her voice ringing through. A lot of times I would play a tape of her voice. And I think it's a beautiful elevator pitch. I don't see anything wrong with it. Oh, well, thank you. I guess my question to you, Nita, is do you think healthcare will buy that? Say we went in with that elevator pitch that we secular spiritual practice, if you know, if if you want to claim a certain, you know, Hinduism is mm-hmm. part of yoga, that's everyone's prerogative. But the way I was taught from TKB Deskachar, it was a secular spirituality yeah. Yeah. that could be applied to any religion. And that we are going to be the person who helps that patient make it through this process of whatever disease pathology and doctor's appointments. Do you think that they would go for that? I don't know the answer to the question. I'm exploring. Yeah, I don't know either. And you know, the other thing I was, as you were asking that, I thought that this work might be more important for the people who don't have a happily ever after story when they're traveling through this. I mean, where we are most supportive is in those moments of you're going through the journey, but you don't know how it's gonna end up. And that's the hard piece to carry. Um, that's right. Then there's also people where it doesn't end well, yeah. or they end up living permanently with something that is unfun. Right. And, and all of those things, the unknown, the unfun, that's where many people report a gap in the healthcare options that are already out there. I really think we're we're good with the unknown and the unfun. <laughs> and um, that's our specialty. And I, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that it's it's a really important consideration that we we talk about it. We have a language and tools to examine that clearly, not because we have an answer, 
But because we can hold that space when people are like, this is ungood, this is unfun, I don't want to hold this on my own. And there's something about the architecture of how we've built society that people feel more alone than ever. That because people used to go to whatever temple or church on Saturday or Sunday or Friday, I don't know if everything is on a weekend, actually, and they would be seen by others on a regular basis. And somebody else could say, whoa, you look different, which could be good or bad or anything. But now we have to create these little practices until we organize community again. And Mm -hmm. so that people don't have to hold this by themselves. And gosh, I don't want to underestimate how there are incredible scientists and doctors who are, and nurses and everybody else and human beings who are curious about finding cures and solutions for all of these things. But there are a lot of people who are going to be uncured and unresolved and floating in chaos. And all of a sudden they're haunted by something that may not change into what they want. And it doesn't have to feel that way if they have hopefully people like us to come to. But I do think it's a hard sell too, because the very people who we have to work with have succeeded in the status quo language about health and well-being. And I wonder what it will take. I mean, there is a lip service to biopsychosocial spiritual. That's right. But I, I don't, if people aren't living it themselves, I don't know that how they can see it. So there's sometimes I wonder if, if there was a way that I could go in and regularly offer a practice to healthcare providers and say, you're doing a lot. Like, can we can we experience something different and see how that affects your approach? Um, that's a that's potentially a arrogant thing to say. <laughs> no, no. If they don't, if healthcare workers and providers don't have an experience and feel that being held, that community, that mortar in between the bricks of their lives, they're not going to re- recommend us because. Yeah. You know, I, I want to read what you wrote. Do you mind if I read what you wrote? Well, I, I had asked sure you, cringe, but <laughs> where do you see the field of yoga therapy headed in the next five to 10 years? And you wrote, I wonder about this a lot. I'm, I'm skipping around a little bit here, but you said, from my small experience, it would be a shame if yoga therapy became yet another prescriptive healthcare modality. Our philosophical roots allow for something different. Maybe we offer a way to experience all the variation and unpredictability of the world without losing ourselves completely, especially when things go horribly wrong. Five years ago, I would have thought healthcare would laugh at that and be like, okay, whatever you, you know, new age fruity people, but they're suffering now and COVID is not going away and the systems are breaking down. I think they would be willing to listen to that now. Help your people sit with their suffering. Nice pitch. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We can help your people sit with, yeah. Let's both yeah. write that down. And because a lot of doctors are telling me or nurses, they don't know what to do with people. They send them home and they feel horrible that they don't have someone to help them sit with their suffering. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of that power of leaning into stuff and and how, you know, even sitting with suffering, it's it's not like we're going to put on a bunch of depressing music and you know i mean that maybe some people would like that but you know just to as soon as you get curious about it, 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 it there's this 
perspective you can get about, one can get about it as well. Or we don't put a bow on it. We can sit and just say, yeah, this is really bad. Can we have a, a place where you can really have a moment of the everything bads is what we call it in my household and, and just say, yeah, it's everything bad. Let's just pretend it's everything bad because the rest of the world is expecting you to be maybe a smiley warrior, an easy person to contend with. You can't throw a tantrum in a doctor's office. I mean, the poor, we all know that those practitioners are carrying a lot already and are moving from one place to another. So where can you do that? Come and have a tantrum with me. Mm. I've thrown good ones. I can hold a space for yours. (laughs) (laughs) And here's another thing you wrote that I just loved. I, I asked you, what's one piece of advice you could give our listeners? And you wrote, we don't have to have the right answers in order to be of service. We just have to wonder with people. Yeah, that is really something that I have learned from my yoga therapy school. You know, our first year of exploration, we had to do a lot of work on ourselves. And I thought, wow, I've made so many mistakes and I still make mistakes all the time. And, you know, this is unpacking this idea of perfection that I still carried, I guess, or expectations I had of myself and good student syndrome and all these things we've been touching on. And it was Anne Pittman who said to me, our shared friend, she said, don't make up a story that you can't have a life and be of service. I've had to think about that a lot. And I, I say that to myself all the time that I don't have to go in. There are other people who are going to try and fix this person. They can go to their psychologist. They can go to whatever. I just have to wonder with them. Mm. And, and it's incredible what arises in those sessions. We don't just sit around and do nothing, even though that's what prior to my training I would have thought would happen. There's an impulse that person has to move. They notice something in themselves and we explore that and a whole practice can arise and we just have to wonder and that can arise. And I've realized that that works with that approach is how I approach uh, relationships outside of a yoga therapist as well. Mm -hmm. And, And that it's the kindest thing to do for children so that they can resolve their own life. Wasn't a very successful helicopter parent, but <laughs> even still, I'm sure I fretted a little bit more than I should, but I don't have to do that. I just have to wonder with them. I'm going to go all the way back to what you said at the beginning of this little segment that your first year of yoga therapy school, basically you, you worked on yourself. You, you had to learn how to wonder and sense and listen to yourself before you could probably be very effective at doing that for someone else. And I think it's really hard to do that. It's it's easy to talk about, oh, I'm going to work on myself. But to get in that place of curiosity and wonder and stay there, huh. that's hard work. That Because we want the security of knowing the right answers. I I find this all the time with people in year one. It drives them crazy to just sit in that gray area. Like, am I learning anything? What do I know? Who am I? Why am I here? Like to just be with those wonderings is really hard for people. And there's a lot of resistance. So, you know, for you to take that from year one of your program, become a yoga therapist, apply it to your most beloved children. Like that's the work right there. Oh, yeah. And they'll probably tell you I'm doing it all wrong also, which is their job. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't have the capacity to grow in one area of my life and not have it bleed into other areas of my life. So I wonder if that's true for everyone. But it certainly is for me that if I'm if I'm working on something in one area, then I can see that pattern in other areas. And I think that's what we mean by self-reflection, self-awareness and self-actualization. Like that's the process is that it is bleeding into the other areas, hence the need for our daily practice, right? Mm-hmm. And for remembering that it's not just us. I mean, that we're always part of a world. And a community. Yeah, I think I'm really noticing how good you are at trying to keep me on track. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to keep us on track. And this is going to be our last question before we tell people how they can contact you and be in touch with you and listen to your podcast. So the last question I had asked you at the end of your life, what do you want to know in your heart? And what you wrote back is that you have a death meditation that you do on a regular basis. Tell oh, us yeah. about that. What? Why would you do a death meditation regularly? You know, I think I heard from someone that this might be a good idea. It was someone very Buddhist oriented. You can tell I'm not super great at gossiping about other people because I don't remember names. And I thought, oh, that's kind of neat. And then I came across this app that pops up different quotes related to end of life. I'm sure you've heard of it, that We Croak app. It's really funny in a good way. And then I sort of have this journal with a whole bunch of different, whenever I come across somebody's thoughts, they'll write them down. And around the time that my mother died, I guess it was about eight years ago now, you know, she was very young. Well, I felt that she was very young for cancer to take her out, but I don't know what that is measured by. And it was hard. So I would just think about it a lot. It wasn't a very organized meditation. I just lie on the ground just because that's one of my favorite places to be and feel the ground and think about life and death very broadly. It's really all there is to it. And sometimes my thoughts drift elsewhere, but certainly when I don't practice, it's harder for me to remember how I want to be in the world. Mm. Only about 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes. And sometimes it's more oriented to noticing what breathing is like and feeling aliveness in that moment, even though I'm lying in a bit of a dead shaped position. I guess at least how they show it in movies. So that's really all it is. And it really does help me proceed with patience because I hadn't realized that when you see your mother die at an age that I certainly plan on sticking around longer than that, that rushing feeling, I carried it more than I thought. And it was easier to leave that and say, look, I've whatever time I have, I have. And that rushing is just letting life slip me by instead of um, really living it. Which sounds like I've perfected that and I haven't, but but it is funny, like that's an interesting practice for me too, is how do I stay present and move fast at the same time? Like how can you, those are not things that we typically put together in this space. Yeah. You know, the other day I was meditating on death, <laughs> strangely that this should come up because we have a family member who's in their death process. And I was laying in bed, just feeling and breathing. And I thought, when I'm in that person's position, I won't need that makeup. I won't need that closet full of clothes. I won't need the specific foods in the refrigerator. I won't like, I just went through the whole house and like, kind of imagine myself letting that go sitting in 
a small room with really not much, a hospital gown, you know? And then I started thinking, well, what else won't I need? I won't huh. need an attachment to XYZ. I won't need to check my emails every day. Like I just started taking away all the things that are no longer going to be relevant to me. Huh. And it was powerful. It was very, I don't know where that came from, but that was my death meditation <laughs> that I did last week. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm just looking up here. There's another um, quote I came across where you were saying something about the only thing you have when you die is your mind, which was actually what made me start wondering about how they define that word mind to take us back to the beginning there. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that having a meditation like that does for me regularly, too, is that I lie there. And of course, I always have this moment where there's all these vrittis. And before I start to worry about making meaning out of them, all these fluctuations in the mind, I guess, is one definition of that, vrittis. I can very quickly look at them and say, I, I don't think that they really matter that much to me. And that makes life a lot easier. I mean, it's amazing what we decide really, really matters. You know, making sure I get my hug in with my kids or making sure I send a message out to at least three of my friends in a day, just even if it's one sentence, like checking in or something like that. That matters to me. Yeah. Or something else. I don't know. Yeah. Nita, I feel like we've had a lovely conversation, almost like we've had tea together at a coffee shop. Oh, I hope we do one day. That's a really nice I idea. I know. I hope so too. Well, now between you and Pittman, Cassie Kitt, you're all up there. Helene Corvette. I mean, I'm motivated to come be with you all. So yay, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us just a tiny bit about your podcast. It's a little different than this podcast, although it's also on yoga therapy. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's a very misleading title. It's called Ask Me About Yoga Therapy. And a friend of mine called me out and said, no one's asking you that. You're asking other people because you're confused, right? And I said, yes. <laughs> so among the lovely guests are you. And we talk about, well, oftentimes at the moment I speak to a person, there's a specialty or a specific curiosity a person may have, but we just talk about yoga therapy. And as you may have guessed, a lot of other tangents, because that's a bit how I roll. And we actually have every now and then I might have a guest who is not a yoga therapist. I think Michelle C. Johnson was one. Or there's my friend Tracy Beryl, who is, oh, well, maybe she almost is a full yoga therapist now and no longer a student. She's getting close. And so I hope people enjoy that. It's a shorter piece than your lovely work. It's a little bit of wondering. I hope to have some repeat offenders. Maybe Amy will come back. <laughs> <laughs> and is there any way that people could work with you, especially if they don't live in Ontario? If you've piqued their interest, do you do online or is it mainly? Yes, I do do online as well. That same website, askmeaboutyogatherapy.com, there is a place where one can reach out and connect and I have really been surprised, and you were one of the people who really reminded me of this, of how effective Zoom work can be. I went into COVID thinking, oh, how hard it'll be to connect with people over Zoom. And then I got used to it pretty fast and found that it's very supportive because people don't have to get in their cars and come and meet. And Yeah, yeah especially uh, for people who have chronic pain or 
you know, severe illness, or maybe they are close to their dying process. I, I think there's a lot of people who it's actually more beneficial to be online. Mm-hmm. I love that you busted that open for me. And I have some clients who are in a different country now. Right. I mean, not just not just the states. That's ridiculous that I do, but, but across the pond in different time zones, and it still somehow works. It's amazing that it still somehow works. Humans can adapt to anything, isn't it wild? We are amazing. We are amazing. <laughs> okay, Nita. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. And if there's any last words of wisdom, you can share them. Otherwise, we will say thank you. And Oh, uh, thank you. This has been a real honor, Amy. And I'm always delightfully disarmed by your generosity mm. and the space you make for people and your leadership in this area. So thank you very much. Thank you. Shanti. I'm feeling very sattvic after my conversation with Nita. One of the most beautiful parts of the conversation for me that is really alive inside of me is this idea of what is it that we bring, especially to the healthcare setting that will meet the pain points of the doctors, the nurses, but also the clients. What are those pain points that they're struggling with, such as, this is really difficult. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I don't have a community to share my suffering with. That's a huge pain point. I, I remember being the daughter of a Lutheran minister and like clockwork, every Sunday morning, we went to church and then had coffee hour. And what did people do at coffee hour? They came, they got their little piece of tasty treats and maybe two or three. They had some coffee and they sat for an hour talking to their friends about what was going on in their life and where they could use support. And maybe somebody was going to bring over a casserole that week to make it easier for them or pick their kids up from school to give them a day to do whatever they needed to do or take care of their cat. Like that was part of the fabric of the community that I grew up in, in Iowa long, long ago. And I really think we've, many of us have lost that, whether we're not in contact with our family of origin, but also our community. Do you know your neighbors? Do you sit with your neighbors? My husband and I often talk about we have to get this outdoor patio ready with the fire pit where everybody in the neighborhood knows they can come over and hang out on weekends. That's that's one of our goals going forward during COVID times is to have the fire pit ready. For this reason, how do we share what's going on within us, especially the things that are really difficult and we're suffering with and we don't have an outlet and not everybody wants to go to talk therapy. Is that enough? Is If we presented that, would healthcare want that? I'd be really interested to know if being that mortar or that glue that holds everything together, if that would be enough. A lot of times we talk about sales and marketing. Let's, let's go after the low-hanging fruit. Well, that's low-hanging fruit, but it's deep. <laughs> it's serious. And I was thinking, well, would healthcare feel that we're qualified to do that? But Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and many other ancient texts, it's all about preparation for the end 
or for death or preparation for suffering and how to find acceptance or work your way out of the suffering. That's what we're trained to do as yoga therapists, especially in programs that really focus heavily on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra as kind of a foundational lens or framework with which to view the five layers of the human system. So I think it's enough. I remember Matthew Taylor talking a few years ago about getting involved in a big federal government, United States federal government pain consortium where they were trying to solve the opioid crisis and figure out how healthcare was going to interact with that and help people through that suffering of being addicted to opioids. And there were many categories of different healthcare providers from physical, mental, emotional. And the group that Matthew wanted yoga therapy to be in was the spiritual group, because that's where we have so much to offer. And it's not that we can't be aware of the physical body, the mental, emotional body, but the spiritual is where the gold is for us. And so when he went into those meetings, he was really advocating that that's the door we could get into healthcare with and really be within our scope of practice, but also have something very unique to offer the world. So I'd like to hear more about that, especially from people in healthcare. Is that something yoga therapy could lead with and be accepted and have them say, yes, we need that desperately. In my mind, of course, I think that, but I think we have to go out there and test it out with real doctors and nurses and hospital administrators and wellness directors and ask them, is this something that you could use? And would you be willing to pay for that and support that in your system? If not, it's still okay. There's still hope for us. We can personally market ourselves that way too. So it's a wondering. I don't have all the answers. It's something I've been exploring within my own optimal state yoga therapy school, but also exploring for the field of yoga therapy. And I think these conversations are never ending. They're growing, they're continuing, we're learning, and the joy is in the journey. All right. Have a great day, everybody. And we'll talk soon. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content, and that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. 
And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.